What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the current manager of the Overlook Hotel, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? Uh, all work and no play it makes Travis a dull boy. Um, I am currently not working. No, excuse me. Uh, nicely picked up. Um, good film, that one. I haven't seen it again. I'm going to watch it again soon. Such a good film. Such a good film. Uh, I'm doing, other than, you know, um, you know, no beer and no TV, make Travis something, something. Um, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well. They're coming mm-hmm. to the tail end of winter here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing your friends over in the UK experiencing a bit of a heat wave. It's been 25 a couple of days in a row. So mm-hmm. um, we've got some of that coming our way in summer, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's quite fun talking to my parents and my friends over in the UK. Shout out to all the UK people. Hello. Um, and they're like, oh, it's so hot. How do you manage this? It's 22 degrees. Oh. In fairness, British homes, not having spent a lot of time in Britain, aren't really built for the cold, warmth, I should say. Aren't really built for the warm weather they are. Air conditioning is a bit rare. It's getting more common now, but even still, the British are people that complain in the tepid, lukewarm temperature. They'll they'll just say, oh, that's so middling. <laughs> uh, it's an art, it's a national art form, it's a national sport. It's good trivia. Um, I, I, I was watching a TV show recently, I was described, um, uh, someone who was on the show as being the kind of person who uh goes to his holiday home in Spain and then complains that everything's too spicy and they don't have his favorite brand of British beer. Um, <laughs> yeah, was it Watney's Red Barrel or something that Monty Python used to talk about? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny because it's true. Yep, yep. I'm, I'm I'm thinking of many extended family members who do exactly the same thing, and I'm cringing. <clears throat> but, ladies and gentlemen, we have got quite a show for you today. We have got our latest Link in the Chain movie, Suburban Commando, as picked by my gracious co-host last week. We've got our thoughts on episode two of She-Hulk. There is the the delight for us all. The slowly coming to an end, torturous event of Michelle's life, the Trek Respective. Ah, we have some bad news on that front. We have a delay in this week's Trek Respective, so we're going back to the commercial break this week. It's a commercial break, ladies and gentlemen. I am so sorry I was expecting and anticipating insurrection thoughts, as well as the now famous Morse code by the blinking in Michelle's eyes. But... Okay, so we will have... Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a busy week, and unfortunately we didn't get to record it, but there will be a double edition of... The end, we will tie a bow around mm. the um, the uh, next-gen films next week. Yes, 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 yes. Um, we have got some new movies to talk about. Uh, Travis checked out Elvis. Um, I checked out a nice little movie, um, part of the science fiction fest in Melbourne going on. Well, I think it's come to an end now called Polaris. Uh, Travis went back to 1985 and watched Chevy Chase in Fletch. And it's not I'm, a new movie. Not a, strangely enough, coming from 1985, it is not a new movie. Um, and it is not a new cut of the movie. But we also have got my thoughts on Uncharted. 
So the latest to bat for that white whale that we both keep on talking about of video games will be the next superhero success. Do they succeed in this one or do they fail? You will find out later on in the show. But for right now, we are going to talk about our chain movie of the week. One suburban commando starring the... I think he was always born, like 54, with a moustache and receding hairline of Hulk Hogan, as well as Christopher Lloyd and Shelley Duvall. Travis, you picked this one. Introduce this bad boy to us. Ah, well, yeah. So Suburban Commando is a science fiction comedy. I mean, I think it's very generous using both of those. Action comedy sci-fi is what IMDb says. I don't know that any of that. I think it's been generous. Uh, an interstellar hero from a distant world visits Earth and tries to fit in with a mundane yet kind suburban family, mm-hmm. starring the uh, the icon uh, Hollywood Hulk Hogan uh, as Shep Ramsey in the beginning of his attempt to uh, parlay his uh, wrestling fame into a, an acting career. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I think it can only be described as a you know a massive success that that acting career. I mean. Paved the way for the likes of a rock. Pre or post Thunderlips role? After. That was in the 80s. And before this, we had this is a follow up to No Holds Barred, um, which is in the late 80s. Yeah. With Tiny Lister. Um, Yes. uh, Which then took part, (laughs) moved into the actual wrestling world when Tiny Lister came in to the WWF, as it was at the time, as Zeus! (laughs) Zeus! Um, he was uh, Zeus. And oh he was, my god, the indestructible, ah, ah, yeah. And you and they'll be in a series of tag matches with um, uh, much a man Randy Savage versus Hogan and, and his pal Brutus Beefcake, who interestingly was a stuntman on this film. Uh, oh, the great you. Ed Leslie, who is just follows um, uh, follows Hulk Hogan around like a lost puppy. Um, and <laughs> Tiny Lister, I think it's fair to say, was not a very good professional wrestler. Um, and uh, you, I mean, if you're a wrestling fan, I mean, many of you may not be, but I know George, you are, I don't know if you remember, but if you go back and watch him now, you can just see Savage just carrying Lister. Yeah. Basically, his whole shtick was punching his chest and, and no selling moves. Yeah. Um, and maybe he had a clothesline or something in there. But anyway, that was no holds barred. And apparently that was quite successful. Um, and yeah. so this is the follow-on to that. This script, though, was written apparently in mind with um, uh, Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger in mind, uh, with um, Schwarzenegger obviously to play the Shep Ramsey character and DeVito to play um, Ch- the role of Charlie Wilcox, played mm. this film by um, Christopher Lloyd. Lloyd. Uh, instead, mm. Schwarzenegger and DeVito decided to go off and do Twins instead of this. Um which meant this one went into turnaround and ended up on the desk of Hulk Hogan. I think they probably made a fair, fairly good call based on the results here. <laughs> so I have my first question, right? Because the blurb says an intergalactic hero from a distant world. What is Chip Ramsey? Because is, is he a bounty hunter? Is he a hero for hire? Is he part of a galactic police force it's never really cleared is it never, never quite clear exactly what it is at the start of the film we see an homage a very cheap poorly done homage to star wars um as uh, <laughs> the president of something is held hostage by uh, the, the film's uh 
central bad guy, uh, General Suter, um, as he is destroying this defending fleet of spaceships mm-hmm. um, and just generally being a, a bad guy with a cape. Um, only that uh, Shep Ramsey, the great Shep Ramsey, um, it somehow gets aboard the ship and starts kicking ass and taking names. Ramsey. Ramsey. And uh, rescue, ends up rescuing, not rescue, or killing General Suda and blowing up the ship. But unfortunately, the president um, dies in the process. I would like it noted that it this is the first time that we've ever truly, or the, the first time it, before Harrison Ford became the legendary American president, get off my plane kind of guy. This president of unknown planet and constellation of galaxies or whatever, it's just casually, you know what? I've got throwing stars. <laughs> yes, you do. It's genius. Um, uh, it's, I'm sure Donald Trump carried uh, throwing stars around him quite regularly. Uh, and he probably, he's they more probably, of a Donald Trump guy. But they, but they were probably Cheetos, but someone probably told him that they were probably high-tech throwing stars and don't eat them. <laughs> Could have been a pack of cheesels in that ca- Instead of a nuclear football, it was just a pack of cheesels. Um, <laughs> that's, that's that's the rumour going around Washington at the moment. Um, so. President, stop eating radioactive chips. If can <laughs> um, yeah, but we don't actually learn what role he's playing. I just assume he's kind of a... Get a, a, a space gatabout, a bit like Lone Star in uh, yeah. in, in Spaceballs. Lone Star. Um, <laughs> um, gosh, that makes me want to watch Spaceballs a lot more mm-hmm. than this. Um, yeah. Because he let the president, he's like, you know, he's his handler, for want of a better term, contacts yeah. him after this and says, hey, you know, the old Shep Ramsey wouldn't have let the president die. Maybe mm-hmm. it's best if you take a break. He gets so angry, he smashes the console on his ship, uh, which somehow then just makes it necessary for him to actually mm-hmm. take a break. Because now he's, oh, you've broken your power console. Now you need to go and recharge somewhere. But I don't actually how that's going to fix the broken console. But, um, you know, uh, logic. It's really science fiction, Travis. It's science. <laughs> and so the nearest planet for him to go re- sit out for the next six weeks and recharge is Earth. Mm-hmm. She said that the Hulk Hogan, classic Hulk Hogan sneer, and Earthlings, I hate Earthlings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, we don't get a fair idea of what he does. He lands on Earth and ends up finding a, a uh, an advertisement on a pole for an, a, an apartment for rent, which merely has an arrow pointing in a certain direction. But the superior mm-hmm. intellect of Chet Ramsey, he mm-hmm. manages to track down the apartment which he's occupied by the Wilcox family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie and Jenny, played by Christopher, the great Christopher Lloyd, mm-hmm. uh, and a severely underused and wasted Shelley Duvall. Yeah, it is slightly more interesting role for Shelley Duvall. Most of us, mm. uh, for me, I think Shelley Duvall. I think uh, Shining, Shining, obviously, yep. why I wore this tonight. Yeah, uh, or uh, I think she played Olive Oil in the Popeye movie, if I'm not mistaken. So tough movie to watch. I think if her is screaming and crying a lot, like she, the rumor is she got cried so much in the the shooting of a shining, she actually got dehydrated and passed out or something. Um, she had no more tears left. But it's kind of interesting to see her play a slightly different role. But she's really kind of wasted. It. Anyway, uh, Charlie is kind of I think if we were to use you know modern language to describe, him, he's a cuck. <laughs> if, we, if this was the Joe Rogan show, that's probably what we call him. 
he's kind of he's kind of uh what's the word he's mild-mannered might be the polite way of putting it yeah we meet him his wife is hassling him to ask his boss for a raise um because they're having trouble affording things like kids life uh and we see him go in to meet his boss played by larry miller you don't know who larry miller is by name because i wouldn't know who it is by name Mm -hmm. you know the face yeah he is one of the skeeziest actors working in all of Hollywood. Um, I think the probably the face I know him most from was he's in Pretty Woman. He's the the manager that they suck up to at the shop. Yes, uh, when they yeah. go Richard Gere and Julie Roberts. Bet he's been in Ten Things I Hate About You and Mighty Wind with Nutty Professor. Shit, tons of things like he's got a massive 140 credits on his. But you got to look at his face and be like. Yeah, he's, I've seen he's that. He's got the typical like. There's a particular niche of act of performance that he does, which is that kind of stressy, trying to be nice. He he's played the dean and the boss a lot. So yeah. like, oh, aren't I nice? And I'm quick, quick with my words and things like that. And I don't actually know at all what I'm doing or, or anything like that. He's very much, very much like me. Um, <laughs> Us. Um, <laughs> Other other notable names in here is Mark Calloway. Mm-hmm. Now, most many if you're not a wrestling fan, you probably won't know that name, but that is mm-hmm. the Undertaker. Um, one another WWE WWF icon, um, playing one of the henchmen who are bounty hunters who are sent by the bad guys to try and track down Shepley's and her sport. Um, and Richard Narita plays a, a Japanese businessman. There uh, is another uh, very famous. Oh, very small. And I think you're going to, I would, I, my tip is she's going to be the link in our chain. Oh, see now that was so tempting, but I've been waiting so long to get this link. Oh, but anyway, we are, of course, talking about the brilliant Elizabeth Moss playing Little Girl. <laughs> it's one of the first ever roles. He has a little girl whose cat is stuck in a tree. In one of the actual more amusing actual laughs in the film, like I actually laughed at this because I forgot it happened, and I'm like, okay, that's actually kind of funny. Yes. Um, so it's a bit of a fish out of water story. It's yep. Hulk Hogan, the alien mercenary, um, good-natured alien mercenary, I should be noted who is trying to fit in with his mild-mannered suburban family uh, and trying to figure out mm. the ins and outs of life on Earth. And it, it's a dueling stories thing because between uh, Shep Ramsey and Charlie Wilcox, they learn a little bit from each other. There's there's that odd couple kind of thing that they're trying to go for. And they don't really pull it off. Uh, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, we have, you know, um, Hulk Hogan teaches... Charlie to stand up for himself, have a bit more confidence, um, mm-hmm. and you know the the power of being assertive. Whereas Charlie teaches Hulk Hogan to lock the doors of his stuff, garage when he goes out because Christopher Lloyd like jacks his shit more than once. <laughs> uh, he also teaches him that it's okay to say goodbye. Yes, that was an important lesson. Hard. Um. The amusing moments in this include Hulk Hogan um, harassing children in a video game arcade. If you're under 30, a video game arcade was a room with uh, video game consoles in it, a little bit like uh, this one here. Um, And there were a whole bunch of them in the same room. 
and um, maybe you've seen them in movies or television shows. They still exist in Japan. Um, And kids playing Afterburner, and Hokoga just makes up his whole alternate story about photons and aliens and killing Zerg or something um, while he's playing it. That was kind of creepy, seeing Hulk Hogan in an arcade surrounded by children. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, we have uh, Christopher Lloyd trying Mm -hmm. to, attempting to... um, Beat the traffic lights. Well, that's one, but also I think think you've seen where he's speaking of stealing stuff. He steals um, Shep's power suit, which Mm -hmm. looks... Like they might have borrowed. You remember when we watched Steel? <laughs> it does look like they just got parts of their costume. <laughs> uh, apparently, the guns in this were recycled from uh, Masters of the Universe. I can believe that. I can believe um, that. And he attempts to stop a woman who, for help, save a woman who's being attacked. Um, yep. And he's shot in the process and fails. Yep. Um. Those are my highlights. So yep. it's 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 a it's a strong film. <clears throat> Travis, you're forgetting the introductory music. Oh, of course. Nice place to live. But I wouldn't want to visit. Um, as I said to you today, it's a bit of a shame it didn't win the best picture Oscar. So best picture, best song, best song, I should say. Um, but you know. You can't have it all, I suppose. You can't win them all. You can't win them all. Do we honestly want to live in a world where Hulk Hogan has an EGOT? He's got (laughs) Emmy, the Grammy, the Oscar, and the Tony. Well, I mean, and and a Slammy. (laughs) And you think I made that up? I didn't make that up. That's a real thing. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, Maybe he has a Slammy. He is also a Call of Famer. Uh, and multiple Hall of Famer. Yeah, but unfortunately, there's many people that shouldn't be remembered in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Are you saying Drew Carey shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame for his one Royal Rumble appearance? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's outrageous. I'm more thinking the infamous hair match between mil- Millionaire versus Millionaire of Trump versus McMahon. Uh, oh. McMahon's were fans of his. Uh, of course, we're forgetting... Um, that uh, his wife uh, was actually a member of a Trump administration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 there's something about the, the level of interest they have in this film. Um, that, Nothing uh, really happens. Like It's pretty there, thin. It's pretty thin, isn't it? There's, there's that kind of very casual, permanent, persistent threat through the first portion of the movie of... Shep having to lay low and not being able to generate more than 0.1% energy or something like that because it can be tracked. My God, in the entire universe, it can be tracked from one shot of a laser. And whilst that only gets them half of the universe, at least that's a starting point. And then suddenly it's like, yeah, they're, they're here on Earth. And it's... The costumes for... The two bounty hunters look like the costumes that were probably left over or concept art for the bounty hunters in the Critters movies, if you remember them. <laughs> I don't know if I ever saw Critters. Um, <laughs> it, they're pretty cheap. I remember seeing, I saw this at the, at the cinema when it came out. It's actually got 
cinematic release mm-hmm. in Australia in Australia in 1991. And I yep. went and saw it because I loved um, I, I loved the uh, the wrestling, and we were mm-hmm. like so excited to see. Is that, is that the Undertaker? Is that the Undertaker? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely sweet. Fa is what it meant. Yeah, um, it, it, it was trash. My God. Oh, the fight sequence between them is like, oh, the, bef- before they have their fight sequences, like they're here. I might, I, I have to fight them now. I, um, if if I die, they'll at least leave and not destroy everything. It's like, okay. I kind of feel like this is strange. The, the fight sequences in this are strangely somehow worse than the Street Fighter movie. Especially, Ooh. I'm thinking in particular when it's, I think it's Zangief versus um, one of the other guys. And they literally just implanted the monster sound effects from a Godzilla movie into it. <laughs> that was somehow better than this. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Um, then again, if you've ever seen Hulk Hogan wrestle, um, it, it's, it's one of those things, the guy's charisma somehow got him over the line. But he wasn't a great performer by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there, there was a feud between Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker in the early 90s, and it wasn't great. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a whole sort of led to Hulk Hogan retiring from wrestling is to kind of mm-hmm. perceive his, his, his acting dream. Um, in, in the pantheon of uh, wrestlers turned actors, there's, you know, there's probably you know, John Cena and The Rock. Roddy mm-hmm. Piper did some good stuff. Yes, he did. And then yes. Hulk Hogan. I'm all out of bubblegum. Um, of course, he was in Critters, wasn't he? Or one of those films. Um, he, did more than, he did more than They Live. I can't remember the yeah. other ones. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but anyway. Um, We've got a few a, people that transitioned into or tried to transition into acting, obviously. Oh, yeah. Dave Batista, he's, he's good too. But, um, yeah, he's doing well. well. Hulk, the reason why Hulk went back to professional wrestling uh, so performances, obviously Hulk Hogan is terrible. Yes. Uh, Christopher Lloyd is Christopher Lloyd. He's always yep. good. The mm-hmm. downside is these days and still these days, I mean, you still see, yeah, Doc Brown. Yeah. And this yeah. came out like the same year, I think is back to the future three. So you got to wonder how the hell they got, um, Christopher Lloyd roped into this. Contractual um, obligation, I'm guessing. But now I hear so now I, I have fifty percent Doc Brown in my head and fifty percent Rick. Um when I when I this the strange thing about that though is this is um, his character in this, it's overall, whilst it's cli- you know, Rick was so very obviously inspired by Doc Brown, and this is Christopher Lloyd, this actual performance is more along the lines of um what the fuck's the the dad what's his name in uh rick and morty jerry yeah jerry he's more like jerry because he's kind he's, of he's very jerry in this um <laughs> and as i said earlier and alluded to earlier shelly deval completely wasted in this very mm-hmm. little screen time for such a highly respected and well-known actor mm-hmm. um but she's kind of interesting in this the few roles she's more of a dominant sort of wife sort of role yeah. in this and she's kind of really pushing the husband to trying to go out and do better but there's also the scene where she he comes home after a rough day at work and she's like wearing big hair and like a silk negligee and stuff to try and 
cheer mm. him up only for him to go, not now, honey. And you're like, oh, good Lord. Um, <laughs> but it's very rare to see sexy Shelly Duvall, but we saw mm. her here very briefly. Um, mm. The complete waste. Larry Miller is sleazy and slimy as you want him to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, I enjoyed his performance. Um, at one point, he's trying to keep some Japanese investors entertained overnight while uh, waiting for Char to turn up with some blueprints uh, when Char is actually out fighting aliens. Yeah. Um, and he's doing to keep them entertained for the duration of a night. It seems like it's overnight or something. He's yeah. talking about Japanese movies and like Mothra and. Um, he's just going into stuff. a Japanese movie trivia. <laughs> Which, I mean, in fairness, like is actually a respectable effort. Like I'm not a massive aficionado of Japanese cinema, but like, I think I can go for more than half an hour, really, on that conversational yep. topic. But he managed to pull it off all night. Um, it looks cheap. It looks super cheap. Mm-hmm. So I alluded to it earlier. They re- recycled weapons from a shit movie from five years earlier in, in um, Masters of the Universe. The uh, space battles look terrible. Uh, costuming, as I noted, looks like it was it reminding you of Steel. And you do not want your costuming to ever yep. remind you of steel. You want yep. nothing to remind you of steel. Mm-hmm. Um, so some decent performances, but your central performance is garbage. Bad mm-hmm. special effects, bad costuming, an absolute banger of a theme song. But, you know, <laughs> we should be actually terrible. Um, <laughs> this was earned every bit of its 4.5 rating on IMDb. I think that's generous. It might be. It might be. I actually kind of, I haven't seen this for an awfully long time. Mm-hmm. I thought this could be, you know, good, uh, some fun. You know, mm-hmm. but the shitty, shit movie, so bad it's good, but it's, it's just bad. It, it's just bad. It just sits and wallows in the bad from, from beginning to, like, <laughs> just those little things, like, He's in his um, pod thing and he's trying to stay. And he's just pushing the same button. This guy, stabilize. Come on with me. Stabilize. Stabilize. He's just pushing an on and off button. Well, I mean, he's not doing this or this or anything. It's just a fair point. But he, obviously, maybe it's computerized because, you know, turning it off and on again. <laughs> um, the other notable uh, sort of recycled moment from this was the use of a PKE meter from. Uh, Ghostbusters is some sort of detector thing. Uh, you're like, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people saw that movie. That was what seven years before this. A lot of people saw that, and it was a sequel a year before this was the the uh, Ghostbusters sequel. Mm-hmm. So, I it'd be a bit like you know, you someone picking up a lightsaber and using that in a separate movie as like a a serving spoon or something like that. No one's going to know, right? Like we fucking know. <laughs> we um, this one's this one's sunk beneath the waves, and wow, the world yep. was better for it. Yes, it's. I I should apologise to you for doing this, but you know, um, we 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 run the gamut from you know, yes, we uh, from really high quality, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly to this kind of drink. To, to the really painful. <laughs> But you have the keys if there's nothing else you would like to talk about with this film. No, I, we have given this far too much oxygen as it is. Mm-hmm. I am finally taking us to a movie that I have wanted a reason to go back and watch for so long now. And this one is a bit of a shout-out to Siren Divine because she hasn't seen it. 
And because too many people these days have not seen it, it is based on one of the original classic board games. I'm talking about Clue, ladies and gentlemen. Clue! We're following Christopher uh, Christopher Lloyd to 1985. And Clue. This is a comedy, crime, mystery, thriller, according to IMDb. Six guests are anonymously invited to a strange mansion for dinner, but after their host is killed, they must cooperate with the staff to identify the murder as bodies pile up. It may sound similar to last week's chain movie of murder by death but this one this one's a bit special not it's only has ellen brennan in it hmm? hopefully significant there's racism in this one uh don't quote me on that one <laughs> it is it is that particular time of year um but it's got tim curry playing wadsworth the butler it has got madeline khan Christopher Lloyd playing Professor Plum. It has got Michael McKean. Um, it has got Martin Mull. Um, who else? What are the other big names in there? There's not too many other big names in there off, right off the top of my head. But it is. More than anything, this is a movie where you have to stay to the end of the film because of the pure energy that we see Tim Curry delivering in the, in the last 10, 15 minutes of this movie. My God, that man was legendary. Was he still alive, but he is very much wheelchair bound. And I think suffering from dementia. I mean, he's not well, but he's alive. He's not, he's not a performing actor. Is my No, this is true. Um, Though I would just like to say that this will finally allow me to link to a Catherine Heigl film. Um, what have I done to us, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> well, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I changed my mind. We'll follow Elizabeth Moss. Abort, abort, man. <laughs> um, I already have an idea. It was many opportunities with an actor like Tim Curry. Mm. Um, uh, and Michael McKean, of course, is also mm. prolific. Um, Spinal Tap, baby. Um, the story is written by John Landis. In his hot streak. Yes. Um, John Landis doesn't make good films anymore. No. <laughs> we, we won't mention him. Mean, he's made some great films. But it's not oh, mentioned. I know exactly where we need to go. Because the director of this is none other than Jonathan Lynn, who made a, another classic movie, Nuns on the Run. I'm sorry. I have a keys next week, and we'll be going straight to Blues Brothers 2000. Um, oh, you really want to hurt me? <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> Some things even I won't do. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's next week. Uh, that is Clue, next week's Clue, Clue based on the game known in Australia as Cluedo. Mm -hmm. but, um, we will use your American terminology if you wish. Um, do you want to talk to us some about Polaris? Yeah. Yeah. So. I took my um, associate, I don't know whether she wants me to reveal information on live on the internet, um, but we went and we checked out the Science Fiction Film Festival that was going on in Melbourne, and we checked out a movie called Polaris. Now, Polaris, 
probably, if you know anything about the name of Polaris, you probably know about the Polaris Star, or I believe that there are a couple of um, movies called Polaris. But this one is a brand spanking new one from this year. Um, it is directed by Kirsten Cartu, who don't know any of their work. They've not done too much. Um, but this is... This is a really interesting movie, and IMDb have got it right largely in their tagging of this one. They have just labelled it as an adventure. I think it is a disservice to have this as part of the sci-fi film festival. Yes, it is set in the future, in a post-apocalyptic world, but um, science and that the traditional kind of bells and whistles of a sci-fi movie are very much not present in this. Um, we were discussing about this movie as we as we left, and it's more like it's definitely more of a fantasy slash kind of fairy tale in some ways. But for the uninitiated, a young girl raised by a polar bear pursues her destiny after escaping capture by brutal warriors intent on killing her mother. That is a little bit loose. So I will read the second one that is here, which is written by the director. Set in 2144 against the harsh backdrop of a subarctic wasteland, Sumi, a human child raised by Mama Polar Bear, narrowly escapes capture from a brutal Morad hunting party and sets out across the vast winter landscape. When Sumi stumbles across Frozen Girl, an unlikely friendship is formed, and together they race ahead of the uh, vindictive hunters towards the only guiding light Sumi knows, the Polaris Star. This is a really interesting movie. Movie. It is stunning to um, cinematography. Number one, the first thing that you kind of notice within the first five minutes of this, they are filming in open snow. So the logistics of filming in snow become apparent. If you walk through snow, you're going to leave a fucking trail. But every scene that we see, unless it is a specific route that the hunters take, Sumi and the Mama Polar Bear are going through fresh snow. And that logistically is mind-blowingly brilliant how they did it, whether they digitally um, removed it or they just strategically shot around any previous takes or anything, or if they just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, I don't know. But the fact that Sumi, um, played by Viva Lee, who never heard of before, um, has been in a couple of other things, um, particularly a Deadly Class, which I think is a Netflix thing. Oh, it's on sci-fi. Um, she certainly seems to be doing a lot of her own stunts. I don't know for sure, but certainly stumbling in the snow and rolling. That's going to be a hard, hard environment for a young girl to be dealing with, because not only is it literally working in the snow, but you're trudging through snow that was up to her knees at a lot of the time and she's rolling around in it and fighting she's being covered in cold water constantly that's not going to be comfortable the other things that i would like to talk about with this are the production value is really strong in spite of 
it being clearly being on a minimal budget and this being a real good textbook example of shooting to effect rather it's estimated to have a two million dollar budget yeah so they use every single um every single dollar of that it would not have been cheap to keep the minimal amount of actors maybe 20 25 people perhaps throughout the whole production um settled and the rest of the production team in a snowy condition i don't know where it was filmed but it was beautiful it felt like a wasteland um it's supposed to be northern north america potentially well, it was made it's the country of origin is canada so uh, there you go yeah um oh that's right yeah i did see um it was funded by quebec um it just uses its environment and it uses minimalism to excellent effect. Um, the so like the warriors and the hunters that are going around have got a little bit of kind of the Mad Max kind of world aesthetic to their clothing. Like there's one of the hunters has got this like massive metal horns that they have on their head and they drive around on these scooters. But narrative storytelling of the world is also really good. Like there's a sequence where uh, Muriel Dutil, who I don't know, but she is um, the main, one of the main female, uh, there, there are no males in this whole movie that we are made aware of at the very least. She is one of the first friendly people that Sumi meets. Um, and she's doing this kind of, uh, ice fishing and she pulls out a fish and we see little bits about the development of the world because the fish has got two fins um two tail fins and then there are other bits where they're harvesting like a sap from trees but it's like this putrid green and it seems to be the fuel that they use to to fuel their weapons and uh, things like that so it's a really cleverly show don't tell narrative story the best thing about this is Viva Lee in her performance as Sumi because she doesn't talk. She communicates like a, a young polar bear cub because she's been brought up with a polar bear. So she's sort of like grunts. And I don't know if they literally used polar bear noises for certain bits like there's a moment where she goes into a um, an abandoned old um airplane and she just kind of comes in and she's just standing there just like, <laughs> and making those kind of really aggressive sniffing noises trying to sniff out food or a threat or anything like that and the way she verbalizes when she's uh tried to call out to to polaris and to to her mama and things like that it's really impressive she really shows so much emotion and pathos and energy and connection um throughout her performance that is like wow and we're by the end of the movie it's tough to kind of work out what actually happens because it goes through this whole scenario where we are introduced to girl raised by wild animal. Girl is taken by humans. Girl escapes humans. 
girl finds survivor of a space spaceship question mark girl has unusual powers girl and spaceship girl um head to try and find safe haven following the polaris star which has apparently some connection to the girl because she's got tattoos on her hands and one of them is a symbol of um it looks like possibly like a polaris space station symbol or something like that is never explained um myself and who i watched this with we um weren't entirely sure whether it was really intelligent storytelling of having a human person play literally a young polar bear or if it was a human raised by a polar bear not knowing how to engage but what happens at the end then makes it feel like a fairy tale i think it tries to go a little bit too far with its story I don't necessarily want to know the answers because it was just an interesting ride that I went on. I don't know if I can really recommend this to the lay person, to the average person who just wants to go and watch an interesting movie, because this is, this is going to, you're going to come out of this thinking and going, well, what does that actually mean? What is it actually telling us? What is the, what is the actual story here? I think a lot of it is up to interpretation, but I think it's a bit of a loose science fiction retelling of the classic story of the Big Bear and Little Bear star systems that we see in the night sky. And it's just done in a really interesting way. I would say if you have an opportunity to see this streaming and it's relatively cheap, definitely worthy of throwing some money at it production and performance fantastic narrative i think it just overreaches and oversteps a little bit too far for for mass success but i do like the fact that it has definitely stuck with me and the imagery and the visuals and the emotional journey that you go on throughout this movie it's really good really really good so it sounds like maybe a director to keep an eye on then. Sounds like she's got a lot out of her $2 million budget and maybe mm -hmm. a star to keep her our eye on as well. In, um, yeah, Lee. definitely, definitely. Um, but it's, it's such an interesting little kind of movie that doesn't outstay its work welcome. It is unafraid of kind of showing its limitations as well as pushing them and just letting you question them. It's a really strong presentation. And I think part of it is the director going, you decide, which well, always makes it somewhat difficult. That's a very good classic move for an indie film realism. We don't have yeah. an ending. I don't have to write an ending. Maybe JJ Abrams one, and then it, I can pick the best one and say yes, that's it. Maybe JJ Abrams should take that lesson, uh, or Damon Lindelof, or some of those guys. Could you can't write an ending? Just leave it ambiguous. Let everyone else figure it out, and they'll probably think it's really arty and not the fact that you have no talent. Um, <laughs> speaking of no talent, should we talk about She-Hulk? Oh, 
digging things in already. Goodness me. But, oh, yes, it is worthy of that jab. So we talked a little bit last week about episode one. And I think it's fair to say we were both underwhelmed mm-hmm. with the the way it played out. It was uh, moved at a million miles an hour, um, really felt underwritten. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the, the big payoff moment that everyone get, get their knickers in a knot about, about little Jen's little rant about women controlling their rage could have worked a lot better mm-hmm. if maybe they'd done it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we were both sort of of the opinion that it began. Maybe they should have spent a little bit more time on the origin story rather than just mm-hmm. going a million miles an hour and just throwing shit against the wall. Ah, no, she's here, she's done. She's a lawyer, she's told. Now here yep. comes the story. Um, we, I know the main reason I went back for a second look, and I think maybe one of your reasons was really the strength of a writer, Jessica Gao, who's mm. the head writer, I think, of a series who has a shit hot resume, including working on Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and Rick and Morty, uh, including mm-hmm. the episode, the Pickle Rick episode. Mm-hmm. And I think Michelle and I decided to watch it this week. I think one of the main motivations was someone who wrote such a great episode, some really fucking great episodes of, of Rick and Morty. She's got some serious talent. Maybe mm-hmm. it was just a, you know, they just said, Marvel said, you know, we need the, the origin story done in half an hour. Please yep. hurry up and get that. Maybe it'll start to pick up from here on out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say this. I thought episode two was better. But that's like saying, you know, hey, there's a uh, I made a there's a dog turd on a table, but I've made a better dinner than a dog turd. You know, it's really not saying very much. It's like uh, whenever Michelle asks me about the next Star Trek movie, it'll be like, it's better than Star Trek Five. Um, that's, <laughs> that's really not saying very much, you know. Um, so it's right. it felt breezy mm-hmm. and inoffensive yeah it was like what the americans we would call fairy floss or you americans if you're watching cotton candy it just just, just disintegrated into thin air it was like nothing of interest really happened incredibly vapid and it feels like there's no kind of consequences like everything everything goes seems to like every emotion the emotional journey that we have uh, seen Tatiana Maslany's Jennifer Walters start on and go through, it is resolved so fucking quick. Like, oh, I've got a conflict of interest on um, representing um, uh, Emil Blonsky. I'm phoning you up. I'm, I'm taking it. Yeah, it's fine. Oh, good. Wow. Wow, the efficiency. My God, it's amazing. I wish I had this certainty and I could get things done in 22 minutes. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, uh, I, I've, I've lost my job and I can't get it. Oh, there's a job. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's just... Hollywood. It's, you know, like, oh, can I take someone? Who, oh, yeah, you get to have your best friend work for you as well because she mm-hmm. totally would have got fired because you got fired. That's how these things work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are not lying. This is a 28-minute episode. Mm-hmm. Like, and about six minutes of that is end credits. It's really, really brief. And I'm like, 
And I found myself thinking at the end exactly what you always says, like, it's your TV station. You own it. You can make as many episodes as long as you want. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying we need to be an hour each. Like, you know, um, I think the game, New Game of Thrones show mm-hmm. has really long episodes, but that's super long, long-form storytelling, you know. Like, mm-hmm. but you get, you get 35, you just, you, there's no network, nope. no commercials. There's no nope. – you can make it – 37.12 seconds, you know, whatever. You can make as long as you want, but mm-hmm. 22 minutes? 20 mm-hmm. minutes? It was over before I even knew it. I was just starting to get, get into the story, and you're like, oh, it's over. Yeah. And that's, that's nine episodes this season. That is two. And they've been completely wasted. They have not contributed anything yeah. to the central story. I mean, I guess the plot's going to deal with Abomination and Emil Blonsky somehow, I guess. But, like... It doesn't really yeah. set up a whole lot yet. So, like, no. we're now, to, as I was trying to say, we are two episodes in and we still don't really know what's going on mm. in this series. Mm-hmm. See, my, my big issue for this one is always, for one thing, 90% of the trailers that came out were from episode one, really selling the fact that, oh, Mark Ruffalo is, um, is in this. And then they did an updated epi- um, trailer for it, and they use the cardinal sin. If you have a character that is a lawyer, I don't know any lawyer who, in the scenario, just always goes, "I'm a lawyer." So like everyone fucking knows, they don't. They don't say that. You don't. It's like show, don't tell. Like I was going back to Polaris. Show, don't tell. And fuck me, she tells everything. And it's like, okay, that's fine. Yes, you can break the fourth wall. But people don't talk like that. Like when we're having a conversation with people, I don't keep on reminding people, I'm a retail worker. (laughs) It's like, yes. So what? Who fucking cares? It's oh, it's an, it's so frustrating, and I I don't understand what the point of this show is beyond them very heavy-handedly making every single guy a stereotypical shit guy. The only nice guy has been the guy that turned up in She-Hulk's office with the, so like, oh, here's a plan to the nicest toilet to take a poop in. Yeah, um, I thought that was, I mean, I, I must say, Michelle laughed at that gag, and that was like, the only laugh that happened, I think, in the episode. My yeah. It was like, I don't know, the other one was um, the very obvious um, Sons for Lambs reference. Um, <laughs> yes. Which is actually really a really badly written joke. Um, yes. Um, so we'll come back to that in a second, but, mm. but yeah, the, you're right on that front. And it, it's even the Hulk's kind of being played up as like he's some sort of asshole for no yeah. reason, he hasn't done anything to her or anything asshole ish, yeah. uh, at least like this series. Um, yeah, to be sure, he destroyed a city or two, but you know, who hasn't done that on a bad day? Um, but you know, you it's, it's like you said this after episode one, it felt like Wonder Woman 84. Where mm. they did that in that film, where every literally every man in the show movie was a fucking prick, but in the in the most comically, you know, uh, caricaturish way of like what a sleazy '80s man was like. And you're like, 
Yeah. But I'm sure it sucked. And like, I'm sure there were most, there were a lot of pricks around, but like, they weren't, no one, everyone's a jackass. Like, yeah. not everyone's like that. I mean, surely you should show a mix. I mean, it's just lazy to mm. go, you know, we're going to make a feminist superhero show. And the best way of doing that is to make every guy in it a fucking asshole. So everybody really remembers and they create, it's mm. like that episode of, you know, The Simpsons where they have the Poochie episode. Whenever Poochie's not around the screen, everyone should be walking around going, where's Poochie? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can't people forget that men are assholes and this show is about that. So it's it's yeah. comically terrible, but there's, there's the scene in this episode, where, this week's episode where she visits Emil Blonsky in prison. She's being led down a corridor by an African-American guard. I guess it says, like, don't, don't um, stand behind a yellow lane. Don't, don't, don't approach the glass. Don't touch the glass. And I'm like, Science of a Labs right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 30 seconds later, he gets, he gets, he gets into a room with Emil Blonsky. She makes a reference to um, a nice Chianti. And I'm like, it's a really badly written joke for time for the reference to that would have been straight after he does that. When we're all at home going, we're all making that connection going, ah, oh, it's a Science of a Lambs reference. Don't touch the glass. Don't approach the glass. And then she might have, she would have been gone, oh, is he going to serve me a nice Chianti? And you're going, that's a joke. But that mm. 30 second lag in between the actual Science of a Lambs reference and her making the joke. Mm-hmm. I, it just says everything to me about how badly written this show is. It's lazy. They didn't, they didn't need her comment. She could Even have just. She could have just. That would have been a perfect fucking moment for her to break the fourth wall and go. We're all thinking the same thing, right? Maybe it would have been more fun. I don't. Again, I'm not familiar with comic books, and I know she breaks the fourth wall in the comic books a lot. Apparently, it's her thing. But maybe mm. if you wanted, maybe a, a more interesting way of doing this show might have been. What if it was a, like like The Office? Mm. Like, this is a doc, a, a faux documentary kind of style show about a a, a lawyer who just also happens to be a Hulk. Yeah, right? and he said, but she needs to break the wall, fourth wall. All she needs to do is like in that t- in the office, wherever John Krasinski says someone says something really cringy, he just makes eye contact with the camera and makes a face. Yeah, or maybe you can have those cutaway interviews as well. Um, yeah. You know, but as opposed to her just sort of turning around and talking directly to the camera while there's someone else in the room with her. It just mm-hmm. doesn't really feel like it works. No, it doesn't. It just doesn't flow. I will say one thing that I did like about this episode, not a, um, it's all hanging on Tim Roth and the argument that he has. It's actually kind of a well sound argument. It's he's lying about just how much like he was willing he was willing and wavered to all of the legal things of the u.s government kind of put something in with shitty version of the super super soldier serum and all of that stuff but the celebration versus vilification that was good and it's it's a good idea and it was something that they tried to play with in doctor strange multiverse of madness where it's like oh you um you did this and everyone praises you for it i did that and i'm vilified for it they have not investigated that deeply enough i'm kind of hoping i'm hopeful that that is a little bit of the crux of what is the driving heart of this that that perceived expectation and revelation of position in a social standing 
I'm hoping so, but everything that they have presented in the first 44 minutes of this season has not shown a single iota of that level of intelligent social commentary being a part of this show. Which is bizarre, because yet again, this, the writers of this show have proven on multiple occasions they are capable of it. Yes, um, in the 22-minute episode. This leads me to only believe this isn't them. This no. is Marvel. This is Disney yeah. Marvel. And we've read about it. We talked about it a few times mm-hmm. when there were stories that came out when Black Widow was released that some of their original choices for director were told, don't worry about the action. We'll get somebody else in to do the action. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but Marvel now have a pretty firm – well, Sam Raimi was told what he what not to include um, yep. in, in Doctor Strange. Yep. That, that Marvel are putting their hand on the director's, you know, hand basically on their shoulder the whole time going, this is what you'll make. Mm. Um, and if Sam Raimi is getting told what to make, then yeah. the people how behind mean, how do most people have any hope. Uh, a guy with that much cred in superhero land and just in filmmaking, you know, you're mm. not gonna have, you're not gonna get away with it. Um, pretty much anybody's not gonna get away with it unless you somehow Quentin Tarantino came in and landed a Marvel film. That would that be interesting. Be um, <laughs> or Martin Scorsese, and Martin Scorsese would be even more interesting considering his opinion on Marvel, but um. Mm. I can only imagine this them coming in and going, this is what we want to see. This is what we want this season. We want, you know, uh, everyone to be walking around going, where's Poochie the whole time? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's kind of what's happening. It's kind of so cliched and yeah. lazily written. It's, it's. Uh, I don't understand. People are still saying they like it. I don't know. All the critics come out and gave it really glowing reviews. Yeah. Um, and that's just really undermines it because it's, as if this is nowhere near as I can't be fair. It's not as bad as the first episode. One could almost say oh, it, was, it was moderately entertaining at points. Not funny, mm. um, but moderately entertaining at points. And you're right, that, that scene with the abomination was probably the most interesting thing that's happened in the series so far. Mm. Well, Neil Blonsky, he wasn't the abomination at that mm. point in time. And a nice plug into Shang-Chi at mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with it is, though, I had to explain to Michelle who Emil Blonsky was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been 14 years since that film came out. Um, and it wasn't particularly well received at the time. I don't think it did very well, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it didn't do, you know, it's typical. It was, it was, I think it was actually predates Iron Man. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, because there is the, the stinger at the end of it where Tony Stark does turn up. And they, uh, him and Thunderbolt Ross have the conversation about nice suits. Um, it's pretty close. They were about the same time. They're certainly both released in 2008. Oh, there um, you go. So, uh, June 13th, 2008 for The Incredible Hulk. This is The Incredible Hulk. This is the second Hulk film, the Ed Norton Hulk film, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the uh, Eric Banner Hulk film, which is not canon anymore. It is not canon anymore. <laughs> and um, that, I mean, there's the multiverse. So uh, maybe uh, that would be an interesting choice to bring him back, um, considering how well that worked out or not. Um, <laughs> but it's a little bit like um, the first season of Picard, mm. relying so heavily on Star Trek Nemesis as kind of a kicking off point for the story. Mm. Uh, I'm wrong, by the way. So Iron Man came out two months or so before. Okay. Uh, so about a month before, and then mm. May, so very close. Close. Um, but uh, Star Trek Picard relied really heavily on Star Trek Nemesis as its kicking mm-hmm. point for its story, and I'm like, 
Man, I haven't seen Star Trek Nemesis for 20 years. I will be seeing it this week uh, for probably the first time in 20 years. I don't remember it very fondly. I sure as fuck don't remember the intricacies of the story and what happened at the end. But mm-hmm. Picard went real hard into, into what happened in Nemesis, like obviously being the last time we saw Picard. And you're like, oh, I don't remember. I don't want to have to go back and watch a shit movie just to mm-hmm. figure out what happened. So that was a weakness for me was trying to remember – he turned into a Hulk thing. Why did he turn into a Hulk thing? I don't really remember why he became the abomination. I remember mm-hmm. he was a soldier. Yep. And then stuff happened, and then he became a big monster, and he fought the Hulk in the end, yeah. and he lost. Uh, that was kind of all I remembered. And they 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 sandwiched so much inorganic conversation into that. They have Emil Blonsky literally go through who he is. Jennifer Walters would already fucking know that. And it's like, oh, Emil Blonsky, Russian-born, British-raised, on loan to the U.S. Army, um, special black ops to track down. Okay, yep. That is exactly, exactly what Thunderbolt Ross fucking says in the movie. So they've just taken the dialogue. It's boring. It's lazy dialogue. And at least in the movie, it was put in a sequence where it's like, I got you one wild card for this. It's actually really good. And it it gave it his performance of Emil Blonsky uh, credence because it's like literally listing his credits and successes. In this, it's like, again, people don't go around saying, I'm a lawyer. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm you know, Russian-born, British-raised. And it's like, you're a soldier. Just fucking say that, okay? Whatever. And then having um, Mark Ruffler's going, oh, yeah, I was a completely different man back then. It's like, uh, yeah, I understood that reference. Uh, um, will you go back for another one? Um, <sighs> probably. There's boredom. I mean, 22 minutes. But I didn't go back to watch this straight away. I, did, I don't feel any desire to like, oh, I've got to watch it straight away. Um, I'm mostly interested to see what they do with Daredevil's apparently going to turn up in it. And if the fact that they have made Emil Blonsky and the, the Hulks be the same from the Incredible Hulk to this and to all the other ones, does that mean that... Um, Tim Blake Nelson is put, is in this world somewhere as the thinker where in the incredible Hulk, he, his head was starting to swell and he was really smart. And is, is he going to turn up somewhere? Maybe possibly if they get stuck and go, Oh, we need nostalgia for someone from a movie that no one really cared about. <sighs> I don't know. And, and no one remembers. Like I don't, I Literally 14 years ago, I do not remember it. It grows half as much as Iron Man. Mm. Um, so that's a weak point if you're going to lean hard into into that. That's that's even more homework for everyone to do. But we've probably spent as much time as exists in the episode talking about the episode. Um, so let's keep moving. And I think it's time for a, a, a palate cleanser of a commercial break. <gasps> Commercial break. Who is our sponsor this time, sir? Our sponsor this time. We actually have a, a very prestigious um, sponsor this week. We are being sponsored by Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut. Oh, my goodness. Not really, but really. 
sort of, I don't know. You know you're... <laughs> don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, that you can use the discount code no discount at the checkout. You will get 0.000% discount. It's um, it's a good deal. For the gift that keeps giving. Just getting it queued up here, people. You bear with me a tick. Play me off, Sam. All right. All right. Second, there we go. And go. Это Горбачев. Это из-за него у нас в экономике бардак. Да благодаря ему у нас новые возможности. Это из-за него у нас политическая нестабильность. Да благодаря ему у нас свобода. Полный хаос. Перспективы. Политическая нестабильность. Да благодаря ему у нас есть писахат. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. And for you, sir? Uh, what he'd really like is the type of pizza he has back home. You see, they're thicker and they're baked and served in the same deep dish. They're all golden brown on the outside and light and tasty on the inside. Pizza Hut Pan Pizzas. A thicker style pizza baked and served in its own deep dish with your choice of toppings. Only at Pizza Hut. Meravigliosa, bellissima, buonissima, deliziosa. He says it's nice. He's welcome. <laughs> Something revolutionary is happening. It's new Doritos Light, Ruffles Light, and Cheetos Light with one-third less oil. Soon, they'll be taking over parties everywhere. is no fun. That's why at Wendy's, every hamburger isn't dressed the same. You'll get your choice of fresh toppings, fresh tomatoes, fresh lettuce, fresh onions, cheese, bacon, and more. Having a choice is better than not. Is next swim there. Choose fresh. Choose Wendy's. Choose hamburger A from Wendy's made fresh to your order or B that's made ahead so you take what they give you. They choose B. It reminds them of hamburger they love in Homeland. 
But wouldn't they like to taste the delicious Wendy's hamburger? They'd choose B. It reminds them of hamburger they love in Homeland. But they seem to prefer A. What are you deaf from hearing? They choose B. Most teams prefer fresh hamburgers like Wendy's, where you get the best burgers in the business. If a pizza with three toppings costs $10.99, what would I pay for six toppings? Well, $10.99. The reason is... It's Big Foot! It's the Big Foot Big Six Pizza. Get our special six toppings for the three-topping price of $10.99. Bigfoot from Pizza Hut, a legendary value. Marvel Comics X-Men video packs are at Pizza Hut just for the holidays, so hurry and get your claws on them. Doggy! Doggy! How are you, mate? Good. And there's your two large pizzas at $16.90. Beautiful. So, uh, how's about my tip? Always put your handbrake on when you park your van, Doggy. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Two large pizzas, one large Pepsi, and a garlic bread. Only 1890. You want slice, Dougie? Nah, Margaret here. <laughs> I lost the van. 890 value deal. 1390 double six. There you go. That's what happened between. I was always late. Someone was getting laid. What happened between Dougie and Mark, we will never know. One of his injuries lost to time. And, until we have the Pizza Hut expanded universe. It, we, mm. what you, nothing's impossible. <laughs> you were talking earlier about our um, Uncharted and uh, mm -hmm. the you might as well move on to Uncharted if you like. But um, I was thinking to myself today, actually, we might actually, or I might actually be starting to get become, <laughs> starting to become right. There's a lot of video game stuff being turned into actual content these days. We've had Uncharted. You've got The Last of Us TV show mm -hmm. spending a squillion dollars on. They've now, mm -hmm. um, Days Gone is now apparently getting a, yes. a version. And apparently Netflix uh, making a um, Bioshock movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As well as um, there's also talks already for Ghost of Tsushima um, being turned into a movie as well. The director of John Wick attached. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is be an interesting choice. And we but, make it all in Japanese, apparently. Which would actually be respectful, considering set Japan. <sighs> now, what do you think about Charter? That apparently it made all the monies. Is it any good? It is a perfectly cromulent movie that just so happens to also share a name and some slight connections to a video game of a popular franchise based on Sony PlayStation consoles. Mm. Yep. It's dumb. The first sin of this movie is before the movie even fucking starts, ladies and gentlemen. You know how there's always those prestige, so like, oh, um, Marvel presents blah, 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 or whatever. They have that thing, and Scott Free has that cool animation thing that they do. <sighs> Sony PlayStation Studios have got one of those as well, showcasing like these light show variations of all of their famous characters from their movies, such as Nathan Drake and 
Astro Boy, Kratos, and others. Why? They didn't need to fucking do that. This is the z exactly what happened to fucking Universal when they released The Mummy and had the Dark Universe thing before. It's like, no, don't try and push this as a as a franchise family or house or stable of movies when you haven't even had one success yet. Just fucking have Sony PlayStation Studios, nice and simple, get into the fucking movie, please. I digress. Moving on to this film. This is a movie that stars Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg as the two main big, big names that you will, that everyone will know with the casual villain of Antonio Banderas. Um, the rest of the cast, I do not know. Um, I haven't. Emma, not for me with Emma Stone's work? Um Emma Stone? Emma Stone isn't in Uncharted. Oh, sorry. Wrong. I was looking at the wrong film. So, um, There's Sophia Ali, who plays Chloe Fraser, who is a character from the, um, from the movies, uh, from the games. She's been in Grey's Anatomy, Truth or Dare, The Wilds are most known things, and I haven't really watched those. The only one that I did know briefly is from uh, Sabrina on Netflix, and that is uh, Tati Gabrielle, who on um, in Sabrina, she played Prudence Knight. She was also in The 100. Um, but beyond that, I don't know who she is. Uh, Stephen Waddington. Um, the name that... Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of it. Um, Nolan North has a cameo and he's the voice and, uh, motion capture actor for the Nathan Drake video games. He appears on a beach and has a throwaway line of just going like, Oh yeah, that happened to me once. Ah, funny. I see what they did there. Did you, um, did you play the game? I did. Don't like them. The games, I should say, were multiple. Yes, there are tons of them. They are um, boring sponge uh, enemies. Average story. Not my not my cup of tea. I can understand why people like them, but they are for video games. What this is for movies. This would be a perfectly fine, relatively enjoyable even movie if it just tried to be an a modern day treasure hunting movie that didn't keep on trying to remind you oh we're based on something else because mark Wahlberg has got a bit of a patchy career when he comes to performances he's actually kind of good as uh victor sullivan who is the fatherly figure for um our young nathan drake um who they, they're all somewhat grifters. Um, they're all kind of looking out for themselves, trying to trying to get that big score whilst they all hunt for lost treasure. So here is the synopsis. Street smart Nathan Drake is recruited by seasoned treasure hunter Victor Sully Sullivan to recover a fortune amassed by Ferdinand Magellan 
and lost 500 years ago by the house of Moncada. <sighs> yeah. It's so average. It's painfully average. Tom Holland has shown that he is actually quite charismatic. He is a very good Spider-Man, and he has delivered some good performances. Like, um, in the heart of the sea, he's quite good in that. Um, Mark Wahlberg can deliver good performances. Antonio Banderas can deliver some good performances when he wants to. They're not given anything of room note or weight to do in any of these. So they're just having a cruisy time, being shipped around, having a little bit of Ocean's Eleven-style escapades of heists thrown in with some heavily CGI-doctored action sequences that uncomfortably look too close to quick time movie events than actually sort of like daring do of stuntmen or organic action sequences. And is it, is it kind of going to evoke an Indiana Jones vibe? Is that kind of a vibe you think they're going for here? No, not really. That's, that's the kind of launching point for the franchise of Uncharted is like, oh, what if Indiana Jones was modern day or something like that? But it's even the games, you don't really have that Indiana Jones kind of feel to it. And this even less so. Like the mummy was a better new version of Indiana Jones than anything else that we've seen. The Tomb Raider... Um, movies with Alicia Figanda and even the ones from the early 2000s of um, Angelina Jolie. They, again, go too much on that Hollywood action movie side rather than the Indiana Jones kind of vibe. This is a shake-and-bake blockbuster movie that made enough money, but it's... <sighs> To say that it's a video game adaptation, mm, I don't think that's really true. It uses the name, and there are some references to it, but this, this isn't isn't. I, I haven't played Uncharted because it's a PlayStation exclusive, mm. um, and I have a PlayStation I don't like to use very much. Um, <laughs> but um, it never struck me as a game that really had a strong narrative for it. It was more of an action game, I guess. Yeah. Exploration, shooter, puzzle, like Tomb Raider kind of thing, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, what, what back, back in the day, I haven't played Tomb Raider in a long time. But mm. not a, a game like, say, Red Dead Redemption 2, where we've got that incredibly rich story mm -hmm. uh, woven through it all. You know, any number of, there's so many great games out there never have incredible storytelling. As mm. part of their um, part of their you know, their cell, mm. it was about the gameplay. I think of Uncharted is my kind of read of it. So yeah. it's a little bit like when they made um, Sonic into a movie. Like it was never about the story. So, um, yeah. but I guess in that case, at least they had a really iconic character behind. You know, um, everyone about, has a point of reference to Sonic the Hedgehog or Mario, for that matter. Yeah, but. Unless you are in the PlayStation ecosystem, you're not really going to have an idea of who Nathan Drake is. So why even do it as yeah, a... You know, yeah. The Last of Us apparently has this amazing story, which hmm. I played for an hour and I found it quite boring personally. But um, 
uh, I am a contrarian. Um, but apparently their story is incredible and everyone loves the story of The Last of Us. So, hmm. you know, that kind of made sense to see that um, turn into a film and uh, sorry, a TV show has been turned into. And it'll be fascinating to see how they stick to that story when they get to it because, good Lord, they always love to fiddle around with these things and change things unnecessarily. Um, it's always strange that they've chosen, I guess they look at franchises with big built-in fan bases. Mm-hmm. Um, and But... You know, I don't understand why they've there's so much good writing out there. I mean, again, mm. we talked a second ago, Bioshock apparently also has an incredible story. I, I never really got into the game a lot myself. Um, but I could see even in that game, but it's got a an interesting story. Uh yeah. Fallout. They're doing a Fallout TV show for Amazon as well. And I'm like, I don't know about that. The story's never been that great in the Fallout games. It's about exploration. It's well at least with the Fallout. It's it's an interesting world, and there's there's interesting uh, kind of ideology of that world. So you could come up just with a unique story set in that Fallout world, and that is your launching point. You go off and you do do your own thing, but there is the ah, oh, this is from X Vault or Y Vault that were in one of the previous games or something like that, or there's particular side character or something like that that they meet with. For for Naughty Dog, the creators of the Uncharted games and the Last of Us games, they have really pushed the envelope on making blockbuster games. And the Uncharted games are blockbuster action movies that you play. And they do that. They present that really well. It feels like you're playing an action movie. Whereas The Last of Us feels like you're playing a really deep richly engrossing story episodically as as you progress through when you take the actually playing the action part out of uncharted it's not anything special it's just like okay this is whatever the controlling of it and feeling like and and being that in that moment to do a quick time movement of hitting triangle to to grab hold of the parachute that's falling out of the plane or whatever that feels good because you have actually got the agency of it in a movie you don't have that because you know they're not going to fucking kill tom holland whereas with a story driven a narrative-driven sto- a game like The Last of Us, they did that so well, and they put you in control. I wonder what's the point of moving that story, which was told so well, to a TV show. It's going to be interesting. I guess the thing is that if it's, if it's got a good story, that can drive, that can carry you through a mm. viewing experience because you can get invested in the characters and what go, happens to them and so, and so on and so forth, as opposed to um, like the cell for Uncharted was, you get to be John, Mc- mm. uh, you know, uh, John McClane in this game, and you get to be Rambo or whatever the action hero mm. playing for cool action sequences and doing the cool action things in a story we've seen a million times. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing The Last of Us has a fairly unique or original story mm. that could should be able to drive your people's viewers' interest in the mm. show because um, the game the gameplay in that game was terrible. Again. Um, so uh, I assume it was a story that made people love it so much. Mm. Um, and so that I think is understandable, but they, they've gone with that one because, mm. like, again, it's a Sony exclusive, 
So if you're not in the uh, Sony ecosystem, which in fairness, a lot of people are, mm-hmm. um, but if you're not, you don't get to enjoy it. And so these, there's a whole audience of people out there that can potentially rope in. Well, the thing, the thing with the going back to the Uncharted movie is everything about it. There's nothing, anything that's particularly bad. It is perfectly fine. Um, Ruben Fleischer, who's the director, he's the one who did Zombieland, he did Gangster Squad, he did the first Venom movie. He is good at having that whimsical fun in his movies, which is sorely lacking in so many blockbuster movies. They like to take themselves so fucking seriously. This doesn't necessarily take itself seriously, but the constant fucking reminders of, hey, this is a video game. Hey, this is a video game. Shut the fuck up. Just tell a story. And anytime it gets remotely interesting as a why Nathan Drake chooses to follow someone who keeps on fucking stabbing him in the back because it's a heist movie. You've got to have a double cross on a double cross on a double cross on a double cross. You son of a bitch, I'm in. (laughs) It's sort of like, come on, put some heart into it as well. Tom Holland is good enough to sell you that. He can do it. Give him that. Give him that and give the audience that because then they suddenly feel like they are invested in this version of Nathan Drake and not going, oh, yeah, I still would have preferred it if they'd got Nathan Fillion to do an older version of Nathan Drake because, you know, he did that short film and that was really cool and it had all the references and everything like that. It was good. It's a missed opportunity because they kind of played it too safe and played it too close to the video games i don't know i don't know whether this was ever destined to be a major success because of what it is it's a video game movie which is a tough nut to crack if it was too close to the video games people would have said what's the point if it was too far away they would have said well why why are you calling yourself that so it kind of decided all right i'm gonna go somewhere between those two Middle ground of meh. Uh, it made four hundred million globally on a hundred and twenty million dollar budget, so that's a reasonable success. Mm, and as mm. I said, it's enough that they've now apparently Sony are going uh, exploring Days Gone as a film, which is a significantly mm-hmm. less successful, I think, yeah, uh, game Maybe franchise. But um, about zombies or something. I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I, again, Sony exclusive didn't play it. Um, but I am coming closer and closer to becoming correct. We just need one of these to really go large. <laughs> and every every video game mm-hmm. that had a half decent had sold a couple of copies of a half decent story mm-hmm. you know, will be um will be hot property. Um, only ten years to come to have for it to happen. <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. They've uh, they, Super Mario Brothers movie is older than 10 years. They've been trying to crack that nut for a long time. Or Double Dragon, for that matter. Ooh, but don't say that name. <laughs> Can we uh, talk about going a little bit more highbrow here with you now? And I'm gonna yes, please, please. Talk about please Elvis. The quality up, sir. Elvis, uh, new movie. We, I actually saw a new movie. Uh, is the latest film from Baz Luhrmann, uh, director of uh, Romeo Plus Juliet. Australia, mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge, uh, The Great Gatsby. I never saw that movie. 
Um, we should get around to it at some point. Um, and Elvis um, is a story about a Navy SEAL who comes back from a tour of duty in Iraq. At, no, sorry, it was a different film. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, the life of American music icon Elvis Presley, from his childhood to becoming a rock and roll and movie star in the 1950s, while maintaining a complex relationship with his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Never heard of him. No, niche, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, So written by Baz Luhrmann, directed by Baz Luhrmann, and this is the most – and Baz Luhrmann, Baz Luhrmann's all over the screen for Mm -hmm. the entirety of the two-hour, 39-minute runtime. Okay. Um, So it's obviously – we all know who Elvis is. Um, This is uh, actually – an interesting film, and it's got some good points, some bad points. Okay. Um, bad point number one, and you'll be shocked to hear this: it's way too fucking long. <laughs> it feels like it feels like it feels really. That's a long two hour thirty nine. Like mm-hmm. it drags. Um, that's a, that's a negative point for me. I mean, and you know, sure, there's a lot of story to tell with Elvis, but I don't think it's particularly choosy about which stories it tells. And listeners, viewers, if you ever watch this show or listen to us, you know we have thoughts about biopics. And we always come back to it. I always come back to it. My favorite biopic of recent years, the uh, the Steve Jobs film starring Michael Fassbinder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really fascinating, interesting way it decided to tell a story about such an iconic and important individual in Steve Jobs. It's such a consequential life of Steve Jobs. Lots of story in there you could tell. Ashton Kutcher movie tried to do it. It failed. And I think this film does falls into the same trap as that Ashton Kutcher, Steve Jobs movie, in the sense it tries to sort of tell this huge story in, you know, only you can't really ever focus enough on any of the moments in there because it's trying to tell too much of the story. The guy had an incredible life in these 42 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not sure it's structured particularly well. Mm. So that's a negative uh, in the sense that I, I just don't think you're, you're just kind of rushing through his life and you never really feel the passage of time we cut from him doing a thing to another thing to another thing another part of his life and i'm not particularly au fait with the life of elvis presley i knew the the broad strokes mm. um but uh you sort of go he doesn't look that different you know you don't get a sense of okay this is five years later this is 10 years later it sort of skips through his life without ever really you know spending enough time in any one place to really start to understand his story. Um, because Austin Butler, who plays Elvis, he's a very young, handsome-looking man. Do they age him or anything? Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, he does start to move up. They, they, there's not a lot, though. Like, maybe it would have been something in a different film. We might have had a head part, a head pa- newspaper headline or something like that, you know, telling us, or maybe a screen five years later, ten years later, or something like that. There are so many ways they could have done it, but I found myself going, "Oh, okay, this is obviously significantly later." Mm. Um, but I don't really. It seems a lot of seems to have happened, um, but uh, I don't really understand what's happened because I don't know it was a story about well. Mm. You've mentioned Austin Butler, and he is the biggest tick in in uh, this film's you know yes column, like the, the good stuff column. Austin mm-hmm. Butler is fucking incredible in this movie. Okay. I am not familiar with him as an actor before now. Um, I know he's done 
a few things. He was in once. Oh, sorry, I, have a, I have seen him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He played Tex Watson actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I once I realized that, I was thinking, oh yeah, he was actually quite good in that. But it was a mm-hmm. fairly small role. Um, but he's amazing as Elvis. Mm-hmm. Like he does a lot of the early uh, Elvis performances. Apparently, there's some sort of copyright snafu, which meant that they couldn't use the recordings of Elvis in the film. Don't oh. understand what they are because I believe this had the families, um, the estates, you know, to give approval. But mm. anyway, so a lot of the uh, early performance, Elvis performances, that's him singing. In addition to him dancing and moving like Elvis, he, Damn. I mean, we've all seen footage of Elvis, you know, the, the archive footage, and like he inhabits that character. He fucking is Elvis, for all I know. Mm. To the point where at the end of a film, in the final credits, there's footage of Elvis, live footage of Elvis. I think it's his last ever performance. Um, and you're like, is that Elvis? Oh, he looks weird. Because uh, <laughs> you've been watching, you watch, you, you so believe Austin Butler is Elvis. You almost start to believe that's what Elvis looked like. So you've seen the real guy afterwards. You sort of forgot that's what he actually looked like. He mm-hmm. deserves, in my opinion, an Academy Award nomination for this. I think it'll be a fucking scandal if he doesn't get one for this because he's amazing, especially considering they gave it the Hobby Award to Rami Malek for um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. He was pretty good in that. Mm. Um, but he's Alison Butler holds this film together and he must. I hope he saw a chiropractor after this movie because he fucking carried this thing on his back all the way through. <laughs> um, because the other negative and go back to the negative column here is is i think maybe the worst performance of tom hanks entire career mm. so tom hanks plays colonel parker uh, obviously for those who aren't familiar he was um elvis's manager famously elvis's manager and famously wasn't a colonel wasn't a tom or wasn't a parker um he that was a fake name uh he was dutch not american um, I think it was an, at some point later it pointed at an honorary colonel of the Louisiana Guard or some bullshit. Um, and and later it came out he actually exploited Elvis significantly throughout his career and was very sketchy, his management practices. Um, mm. he This story is narrated by Colonel Tom Parker and it's basically he's our, it's how our film was framed is Colonel Parker on his deathbed narrating the story of, of, his, of Elvis's career and his involvement in it. Okay. Uh, from his perspective. Um, but he took like 50% of his earnings. Holy shit. And in the end, took a a, 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 um, a Vegas run. It was supposed to last a few weeks and turned it into a run that lasted years where Elvis was basically locked in, in to, to do these performances in Vegas to pay off Parker's gambling debts to the casinos and mob people in cool. Vegas. So um, he's... Kind of the antagonist of this piece is Colonel Parker. And wow. and Elvis really does come across as a very sympathetic figure here. Um, you do a kind of walk away going, wow, he really did get taken to the cleaners by the machine and, and the, the personification of a machine. This is Colonel Parker. Um, but Hanks has his ridiculous facial uh, prosthetics on to make him look like Parker. I must admit I'm, I'm not particularly... I don't know anything about him. I should actually Google a photograph of him um, while I'm talking now. But the, the facial thing, it took five hours to put on every day. It looks, wow. yeah, yeah, I guess he looks a bit like him. But mm. um, it looked ridiculous 
it, it really did. It looked like something from the 90s. I don't even ever saw a really crap Dan Aykroyd movie called Nothing But Trouble, where Dan Aykroyd had his horrible face uh, makeup on. and Yeah. It looked a bit like that. Uh, <laughs> and he also talked with this terrible um, Dutch accent, I think it was supposed to be. Um, okay. And the thing is, I, I read about it, and apparently he didn't speak with a Dutch accent. Um, he spoke with a southern accent, um, whether it was confected um, or not. I, I Obviously, I don't know, but he didn't speak with a Dutch accent. So Interesting why choice. he chose to do it this way in the film, I don't know. Look, if I'm wrong, if you're an Elvis aficionado out there going, oh, excuse me, you know, like, tell me I'm wrong, please. I don't know. This is just what I've read. Um but the, the, the accent, even if it was real, it didn't sound real. It sounded like me trying to do a fucking Dutch accent, and I should not be doing those accents. You know, it's like, we have Vesef making your talk. Like, it's, it's <laughs> I just do a German accent and say clogs a lot. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's, it's a categorically awful performance. So this could be one of those weird movies where the lead role gets an Academy Award. And the main supporting role gets a Razzie. Mm. Uh, the other great negative here is I mentioned earlier is Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann's all over this film. Mm. Um, I saw a review somewhere that said, this is what watching someone who decided he wanted to see what every single function in Final Cut Pro did. Um, and I think it's accurate. It's like, you know, like it's almost like someone's going, what does this button do? Oh, that's cool. What does this button do? Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And then continued. It's an exhausting watch. Just mm-hmm. the way we move the camera panning around, it's constantly moving. Not shaky cam, but it cuts really quickly a lot. Oh, and it's constantly okay. on the move. To whatever point, Michelle watched this with me and she was starting to feel nauseous. Yeah. Um, you know, I usually only see that when people go see stuff at IMAX and it gets a bit, yeah, people can get a bit nauseous. But um, a bit like you got nauseous the time you saw Watchmen at IMAX, if I recall correctly. Um, there yeah. Was some, there were some 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 things moving around the screen that were a little bit bigger than they appeared. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Manhattan. You know, um, but, yeah, and for the first half hour or so, you're kind of like, okay, this is interesting. This is kind of cool. This is kind of flashy and entertaining. But after mm-hmm. half an hour or so, you start to go, Oh God, this is actually quite exhausting. It's actually quite annoying. Like, could you, Baz, could you get the fuck out of the way and just tell the story? Like, could you stop with your flashy camera tricks and just start telling us the story? It was just let, just let the story happen. It was an interesting story. Um, and I think that feeds, if you like Lerman, he's probably not going to bother you. Like, if you really like his stuff. Um, it's it, you're probably going to be fine with it. I find it. I've always found Baz more style over substance. Yeah. Um, yeah. and this film is, well, this film is more substance in play because it's a great story, the real life. But he, the style's just overwhelming and overpowering. It's like it's like someone putting too much garlic in a dish. Like I like garlic, but you can overpower things with it. Yeah. Um. So that's something to contend with here. Um. The performance, as I said, coming back to Austin, but the performance scenes where he's actually performing in front of crowds are fantastic a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I did 
didn't really appreciate, I think, before seeing his or I'd forgotten at least, how radical Elvis was at the time. Like mm. he was almost, it was almost like a punk. He was almost like one of the first punks. Mm. I'm sure actual punks would probably disagree with me on that. Um, but when he came out That's in the 50s, to Elvis, man. When he came out in the 50s, he was doing something outrageous and radical, which is kind of what punk was later. Mm-hmm. Um, they, to a film's credit, it doesn't skip over some of some of the more unsavory things about Elvis, in the sense that it does make it very obvious because. Baz can only do well. He has one speed. It, it is obvious um, <laughs> that he ripped off a lot of his shit from uh, African America. It's like it's blatantly ripped off. Mm. There was a scene of him staring at what a, a black guitarist playing "That's All Right, Mama" in a, in a tin shed when he was a child. Of course, "That's All Right, Mama" became famously Elvis's debut single. Mm. Um, this famous scene of him uh, meeting an African American singer playing "Hound Dog." which, of mm. course, then goes on to become a famous song he did. Mm-hmm. So it, the film doesn't shy away from the fact the, the incredible debt um, he owed those African-American artists for basically stealing their sound. Mm. Now, I'm using the word stealing. I don't know if he bought the music or not, or, you know, they were paid royalties or given songwriting credits. I just don't know, and I haven't gone out of the rabbit hole to check. But this, he basically ripped off African-American uh, affects and style and music to make it acceptable to a wide audience. And it doesn't shy away from showing us that mm. it does have a fairly annoying, uh, angle on it where it will then uh, after those scenes have played out, then play a hip hop version, which I think includes samples of some of those songs. So like a hip hop okay. interpretation of hound dog. Hmm. Um, I don't ask me who the artists are. I don't give a shit. I don't like hip hop. Uh, I don't know anything about it. They could have been Nicki Minaj or something like that. I don't know. But it didn't fit for me. It didn't work for me because mm. if, think of a film like A Knight's Town. Don't make a really long way now. The mm. Heath Ledger film. There's a scene in that where they're dancing to David Bowie songs. It's like a medieval ball and they're dancing to Golden Years, I think. Mm. Um, and that's what that, I mean, it's, it's an obscure film. I'm sorry for pulling it out of the thin air. But that's a film where it's like a period film, but they inserted like not modern pop music in it. Mm. And because they did it consistently through the film, he's kind of got it's the style, the stylistic choice that they've gone with here. Because yeah. um, they do it consistently through the film. Mm. Um, I, I think there's a few others. I think maybe there's a Mary Antoinette film, the one Kirsten Dunst, I think, might have done that as well. The mm. um, Sophia Coppola one. There was also it. one about. Um, the, uh, I think it was um, a Johnny Lee Miller one, maybe. And it was like all this pseudo trancey dance kind of stuff for all of the balls and things like that. So, like, they did it consistently throughout. And it's like, okay, this is cool. I, I appreciate this style. Well done. It, I think you kind of need to stick at it, though. You can't just do it the way that Baz does it twice in the middle of a film and then never does it again. Um, so if I have it really out of place, you're like, oh, Oh, okay, we're doing this now, are we? Mm. Is this what we're doing? Okay, okay. And then it never does it again. And then you're like, so what was that about? I mean, I think what he was trying to say was we're now reclaiming these songs again for Mm. the African-American community. You know, they started as African-American music. It was co-opted by by the white community, by Elvis, and then now we're taking it back by 
I, I, I don't know who the artists were. I'm assuming they were African-American hip-hop artists. Cover these songs again. Mm. It really stood out like dog's balls to me, and it, and I didn't like that stylistic choice. Um, but it's a cl- – I mean, actually, well, there you go. Romeo and Juliet had all that amazing – an incredible soundtrack mm-hmm. um, back in the 90s for a, a medieval tale, and it'll be sort of a modern version of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I struggle to recommend this film unless you're a big Elvis fan, I think. It's an interesting education about the story. Mm-hmm. It would probably be worth it in some sense to see an, an emerging star because Austin Butler, I think, is going to be a superstar mm-hmm. uh, for back of this performance. Um, he was in the yoga hoses, so... Props you know, to that. Uh, he's going to be... He's going to be in a new Apple TV show, which looks really sexy, called um, uh, Masters of the Air. He's going to be in Dune Part 2, so um, I think he's going places. You could, you could be worth seeing it to see one of the worst things Tom Hanks has ever done. Tom doesn't really do bad a lot. I have um, seen him do the Lady Killers. <laughs> so um, see him trying to do a bad guy, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. A rare... Thing for Tom Hanks. I should note that a lot. I watched. A, I did a little bit of research, and a lot of reviewers really liked this. Especially Elvis pe- people who really liked Elvis really liked this film. So you know, maybe see it and make up your own mind, but be prepared for a bit of a numb ass because it's long and it feels fucking long. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, the last thing that I just want to quickly talk about before you talk about Fletch is um, a new, another new movie. That came out on, I think it was on Disney Plus, actually. Um, it's called Princess, or The Princess. And it's got a few people in it that we know the face of. Like, um, Joey King is the lead princess. She's the, the main main character. And you've probably seen her pop up in TV shows and movies occasionally. Olga Kurilenko is in it. Um, she was a Bond girl. Um, and then the other people that are definitely more into it, Dominic Cooper is the main villain. Um, he obviously um, has been a, a young Howard Stark. He was um, in uh, The Devil's um, Double. The Devil's Double, which was fantastic. Um for lack of a better descriptor, this this is what the what the synopsis says for on IMDb is when a strong-willed princess refuses to wed the cruel sociopath, she is kidnapped and locked in a remote tower of her father's castle. With her vindictive suitor intent on taking her father's throne, the princess must save the kingdom. Yeah, this is also kind of a medieval. Die Hard, which right. is kind of cool, and it's actually kind of fun. It's dumb fun. Don't get me wrong at all. And the action sequences are good to dumb fun in that very very safe spectrum. They don't go to great or anything like that. But it has that very simple thing and. It just delivers that fun, diehardy element to it, where it's her versus a slew of bad guys that are, are 
basically taken over the, um, the, the castle and she's trying to save her family. Simple story. Joey King does really quite well. Um, she's got a, a, a solid track record for the performances that I've seen her in. She's always delivered well. She's never been given anything particularly meaty or really serious to do that I've seen. Um, but she's, she's strong. It looks like she's doing a lot of her own uh, fight choreography and things as well. Olga Kurilenko is typically vindictive as the henchwoman of a sociopathic bad guy. Um, Dominic Cooper chews the scenery suitably. Everything is perfectly fine. It is rather entertaining. I recommend it if you want something just to have in the background and just occasionally have cool fight sequences and action sequences. It's pretty good. Pretty good. I've not even heard of it, so... Um... <laughs> It just came and went like a fart in the wind, and it's now resting on Disney Plus. And yeah, it's a solid little movie. I think Netflix would be looking at that and going, "Oh, I wish that we could make solid films like that." I mean, I, I, I be honest, and I haven't seen it, but the reviews aren't good. It's got a forty-three meta score, so mm. um, I don't know. It sounds exactly like the kind of thing Netflix makes, frankly. <laughs> um, no, we should, we should try it be better. We should finish. We're getting long as usual. Um, Fletch. Yes. I had never seen this film before last night. Um, somehow. I thought this film, when someone, Michelle mentioned this film to me, I thought this was a historic bomb. But I must be thinking of another Chevy Chase film because I don't believe it is uh, or was. It did okay at the time. Mm. Um, the reason why this came across our, came to our attention is. There's a new Fletch movie um, in the works. Um, or this is it's coming out like next week, I think, or in the next couple of weeks. John Hamm? John Hamm playing the role of Fletch called Confess Fletch. I don't believe this is based on the Kevin Smith script that was kicking around about six or seven mm. years ago. Yeah. I know he was trying real hard to get that Fletch thing off the ground. Mm -hmm. um, he's not listed as a writer mm. on this one, unfortunately, for Kev. Um, and John Hamm, interesting choice. Um, yeah. don't know he would have been mine, so I didn't know anything about this film. I thought this was a Chevy Chase bomb from the 80s, but my goodness, this was a really pleasant surprise. Erwin <laughs> M. Fletch Fletcher is a newspaper reporter being offered a large sum to off a cancerous millionaire that is on the run, risking his job and finding clues when it's clear the man is healthy. Directed by someone called Michael Ritchie, who I've never heard of. But I used to work for a guy named Michael Ritchie. I'm assuming it's not the same guy. Michael Ritchie directed Cool Runnings and The Golden Child. Um, and Chevy Chase plays Chevy Chase, a sarcastic, uh, quick-witted, uh, quippy, uh, over, highly intelligent smartass. Mm. This is this is peak Chevy Chase. This is too. peak Chevy Chase, and this is what made me think. Like I was like, after watching this, I'm like, really, John Hamm? He's going to be doing a very different version of of, of Fletch then, because I was sitting there thinking, I don't think anybody could do this like like Chevy mm. Chase. But like he, when he was at his peak, you know, like this or National Lampoon's Vacation mm. or. I know it's not really well remembered. I really like spies like us. Um, <laughs> I was just know. thinking that. 
<laughs> funny, funny movie for me. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, no one did dry, sarcastic quips, um, mm -hmm. but with like, you know, explosions of accents and characterizations quite the way Chevy Chase did back in the 80s. The only person I could think of who might have been able to pull it off once upon a time might have been Jim Carrey, but not anymore. Yeah, um, but so Fletch plays a reporter. He's um, undercover, if you will, uh, mm. pretending to be a junkie on a beach, uh, trying to get to the core of a story about drug running taking place around that beach. Uh, when he is offered a thousand dollars by a uh, guy in a very expensive car, played by Tim Matheson, who plays Alan Stanwyck in the film. Tim Matheson is again one of those guys. You'll know his face. Um, I know him mainly because he played Vice President John Hoyle in uh, Hoyle's Vice President anyway in West Wing uh, for, for years and years. Oh, that's right, yeah. Um, and he's a smarmy uh, yuppie who tries to get, who offers um, Chevy Chase $50,000 to kill him because mm. uh, he thinks he's a junkie. Uh, Chevy Chase being a investigative reporter, instantly suspicious of the science, basically down tools in his drug story. And goes down the rabbit hole trying to figure out what's up with this uh, this guy and why he mm. wants him to kill him, and finds all sorts of murky going ons underneath. And hilarity ensues while he takes on various personas and talks his fast talk his way into play into and out of different situations um, in any number of hilarious ways. Mm. Um, he is funny. He is slick. He is cool. Um, uh, and the film is ridiculously entertaining. Um, I don't think there was any massive political problems. There might have been a few. We used to go, oh, I don't know about that. Um, mm. but what it made me think of was, I feel like this is a, he is Beverly Hills Cop in mm. the sense of like you know Beverly Hills Cop works as a cop action film mm -hmm. or a buddy cop film. And uh, an adventure as well. But it's, it's a really, really funny comedy. Um, and obviously made mm -hmm. Eddie Murphy a huge star. Whereas mm -hmm. this film is works as a mystery. Uh, and at the same time, it's working really well as a comedy. It was some really decent action sequences chucked in for good measure. So it's sort of ticking all three of those boxes there. And I had no idea what I was missing out on here. This is a really great film for me. It, it's very 80s, it must be noted. Um, but, uh, you know, like he works for a newspaper who has resources uh, and they pay people and they like let him hire cars and go on planes and go into state and stuff like that. You're like, you know, ooh, newspapers when they actually had money. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, <laughs> or is a scene where he's on a plane and he actually looks comfortable. And he has legroom, and it looks like actually like an elegant way to travel. And you're like, fantasy, oh, well, fantasy land, fantasy. That never happened, did it? Um, <laughs> so, um I really, really enjoyed this. Like I, like I said, completely random selection to go out and watch it, basically because I wanted to know what to expect with the John Hamm film. Mm. Um, but if you're like me, and you're like you've never seen it for whatever reason you just thought it was shit or I think I was thinking of cops and Robertson's so that might've been the maybe. I was thinking of. Uh, but uh, maybe check it out. It's uh, I think it's on Apple TV in Australia. 
Um, I I thought it was wonderful, and I wonder. I mean, I guess it, it's not like while I might be thinking it's a Beverly Hills Copish mm. kind of film, it's certainly not as well remembered mm. as that. Mm. I don't. I don't think it did anything like the same business, and I don't think it's as it occupies the same place in the cultural zeitgeist. So maybe John Hamm will mm-hmm. get away with it. He has said that nobody can um, nobody can do the role out Chevy Chevy in yeah. a way. Basically, you can't play a role yeah. like he did. And he's going to do it yeah. differently. Um, but that's all well and good. Um, but yeah, uh, he has kind of set the bar mm-hmm. very high. This is. Um... The Fletch character and the Fletch movie has been something of a wild unicorn in Hollywood for years. Because I think there was uh, Fletch and then Fletch 1 or something like that. There was a sequel. Fletch Lives. Yeah. And then there was, um, for years, they were trying to make a third one. And Chevy Chase was ostracized from Hollywood for a long time. Uh, One of the many times it has been ostracized. Um, And then... Uh, Zach Braff and Bill Lawrence, when they were riding high with success as Scrubs, they were trying to get um, a movie production f- for um, Fletch um, to to get off the ground. This has been this has been a bit of a white whale for Hollywood for a long time. So it's got it's the idea of John Hamm. I like I like John Hamm as an actor. He he has got some interesting range. Like the character that he played in um baby driver was very different to a lot of the other stuff that he's done but he's not he's certainly not someone that i think of even remotely close to the borders of the kind of shit that chevy chase did in his performances or any of his real movies so it's it's an interesting one and i said i've heard that john ham isn't going to try and recreate the role He's going to try and do things his own way, which is a smart call because, mm-hmm. as he, he correctly said, you can't. I was sitting there thinking, the only other actor I could think of, if you were going to try and recreate that Chevy Chase vibe, might be Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, still, still different. Different, but you know, if you're going to go a different direction, you can't replicate yeah. such. A, I mean, I'm I'm now 24 hours into the the flip the guys. And what an incredible performance. It's like, it would be like trying to recast Axel Foley, which they did do for the TV show, I think. But um, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to try and play that role uh, after Eddie Murphy. And I wouldn't want to, yeah. you're going to play this role. You don't want to do it the same way. Mm-hmm. I think he has the charm. He's kind of handsome and he could be, John mm-hmm. Hank could be charming, but can he do quippy, sharp witted comedy? Yeah. I mean, it's got an interesting cast. I mean, They've got Kyle McLaughlin in there, and you've got to think that he's going to be the bad guy. You'd think so. He's going to be great as a bad guy. You've got to assume that. Um, it's got John Slattery in there, and most people will probably know as um, the other Howard Stark. Um, it's uh, Marcia Gay Harden. It's directed by Greg uh, Motola, who did um, Superbad and Adventureland. So he's got. I he's like got- it. I like Adventureland a lot. Hmm. Um, I, I don't exactly know where this film's going to land. I believe it's going to streaming. Don't hmm. quote me on that. I think I've seen the Paramount logo hmm. on, on some of the posters, so don't quote me. But um, uh, it's being made by Miramax. Miramax still exists. Yes, still going. My thing. 
Like I thought they were dead because, like, yeah. we all know who started Miramax. Disney mm. own it now. Yes, I think. Um, maybe the, yes. Um, so who knows where it's going to end up? I, 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 I said I thought I saw a Paramount logo on something, which might means it lands on Paramount Plus, which is a mountain of entertainment. Um, <laughs> or it could, if, if it's you might end the show there now. <laughs> or it could be on Disney. Miramax are owned by Disney, so maybe it lands there. Keep your eye out. But I think it's coming out quite soon. Mm. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. You've uh, followed us through quite a whirlwind of entertainment. Some might say a uh, a hilly brush of entertainment. Um, we talked about our chain movie of the week, Suburban Commando. I have picked Clue as our follow-up, following on the classic, the brilliant Christopher Lloyd. Uh, we talked about She-Hulk, Polaris for me over at the um, Sci-Fi Festival, Elvis, Uncharted, Fletch, and a little touch on the princess. Phrasing on that one is terrible. I apologize. I did not touch the princess. Um, but next week, we will have the talk on um, Clue. I'm hoping that I can actually get around to going to see Nope at the cinema. So fingers crossed for that one. Um, and maybe some uh, She-Hulk thoughts. But if not, you know... We tried, <laughs> and uh, we'll see what else we watch. I do actually want to finally get around to doing a little bit of a retrospective thought on PlayStation VR as well. So thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch. We appreciate you, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Good night.